You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inside Healthcare. This time, NCQA President Peggy O'Kane shines the spotlight on the exploding popularity of telehealth. She hosts a panel of experts to explore how health plans, systems, and clinicians use telehealth to respond to COVID-19 and how challenges and opportunities identified during the pandemic might inform our future. Now, we broke up the discussion into two parts. Part one features a conversation among the panelists. Part two features the panelists answering submitted questions. Let's get started. Good afternoon, everyone, um, and welcome to uh, NCQA's first webinar on telehealth. I think I don't have to tell you what a bombshell telehealth has been uh, into the delivery system since COVID happened, and a blessing, um, to be honest, right? Um, you know, with with all people's fears about contagion and um, people needing to have access care, I think organizations uh, who weren't already in telehealth mode very quickly had to bring themselves up to speed and we've seen a tremendous growth in the use of the technology. And I think we can all imagine uh, a future in which it becomes a, a very uh, important part of how we deliver healthcare, much more important than it's ever been. So we're here to kind of explore at this moment, um, how are we to think about telehealth for the future and what kinds of things need to be put in place for us to optimize uh, how telehealth works to improve the, the quality and value of American healthcare. So this is meant to be a conversation and not a presentation. Let me introduce the speakers and then um, I want to show you just a, um, a sampling of what's been happening with telehealth. So uh, we have a fantastic panel today. Uh, we have Yul Ejnis. Who, are you still a professor at Brown Eula? Uh, he also works full time as a practitioner for uh, Coastal Medical, uh, which is a multi site delivery system in Rhode Island. Carrie uh, Palacanis, who's the executive director of Connect Care Operations at Intermountain Healthcare. Mai Pham, who's the vice president for Provider Alignment Solutions at Anthem, and Michelle Schreiber, who's Director Quality Measurement and Value-Based Incentives Group at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And um, so I think we've put together people who may have some overlapping perspectives, but really our goal was to get some important perspectives for telehealth, and we don't expect them all to be the same. So um, I, I just wanna thank uh, the speakers for being here today. And um, uh, let's get started. Uh, this is from the Commonwealth Fund. Uh, it's uh, data from Freesia, which is, which is a data uh, company that uh, does patient intake, all kinds of patient intake software, and supports uh, thousands of medical practices representing 50,000 practitioners in the United States. Um, so this, this is what happened. Um, from uh, the, the week of March 8th, when it was pretty much not happening, 
uh, up until uh, April 12th. And um, I think we can, we can expect it to continue to climb over that time. So uh, this is as a percent of total visits. Uh, so you can see that it was at 30% of visits. And I think we've all heard anecdotes about even higher than that. Okay, next slide. Percent reduction in visits. Uh, so you can see that the biggest impact was on children uh, ages 7 to 17. Uh, but not far behind them were older people over 75 and uh, also a big reduction uh, for people in the 65 to 74 uh, age group uh, for very obvious reasons they're more at risk i think with children's care uh, the, the reasons are a little more complicated so um, let's go to the next slide so this is just um, looking at in-person visits uh, versus all types of visits. So that widening uh, gap between the two, I think represents mostly telehealth. And um, so I just wanted us to kind of get on the same page in terms of, uh, you know, the, the dramatic shift that we've seen in how medicine has been delivered uh, in the past couple of months. So let me just st stop there and um, just say a few words about NCQA's point of view about this. Um, I think uh, at NCQA, we tend to uh, welcome the future, and we've been wondering why uh, some of the new technology really hasn't taken off in healthcare, and we were wondering that before. Um, it's not just uh, telecommunications or televisits, but, you know, it's wearables, it's remote monitoring, it's the things that make it really possible to practice medicine uh, in, a, in a very dispersed fashion. And um, so I think we're very excited about the future coming upon us. And we think also that it's very urgent to try to set the rules of engagement in a way that really optimizes the contribution uh, that telehealth can make to the delivery of healthcare. So in our view, uh, and, you know, there are, there are sort of urgent care situations for telehealth, but um, I think in our view, quality is about a relationship and it's about managing the health of people in an affirmative way, which means that either telehealth is somehow communicating uh, with the usual sources of care or it's creating its own source of care. And I think that's probably a scenario as well. Um, but this idea that quality is a relationship where somebody's actually worrying about whether this patient is getting the right care and the right follow-up and, and so forth, uh, we think that's really the most important way to think about it. But each telehealth visit also has aspects of quality. How satisfying is it for the patient uh, was it possible for the patient or the doctor uh, or the nurse practitioner to get connected? You know, there are many, many things that are going to affect the quality of those interactions. Um, but I, I think we think integration is key. So um, we can think about telehealth versus usual health, but I think in the future, telehealth is going to be part of how care is delivered. So while we want to answer some questions about telehealth on its own, I think what we really want is a way to think about telehealth as a way of making healthcare interactions more patient-friendly 
and more convenient and maybe even uh, less expensive than the way we've been doing here. So um, it's all healthcare. So no one says telebanking, it's just banking. So with that, I'm just going, uh, you know, as I said, I think we're very fortunate to have this panel, which I think each of them sits in a very interesting seat when it comes to tele telehealth and telemedicine. And um, uh, we, we want to hear what you think. It uh, doesn't mean you can only speak from your own perspective. For example, as a practitioner, uh, as, as Dr. Angus says. Um, so uh, with that, um, we're going to hear from each of the uh, panelists for a, a few minutes, maybe telling us something about their point of view or some data that they've seen that might help the conversation. And then we're going to launch into a conversation among the panelists, and then we're going to go to your questions. Uh, Yul Anus, uh, if you could start. Well, thank you very much for the invite to participate. Um, interesting to see the slides because they reflect my experience. On uh, March 18th, I think the first uh, test uh, run uh, took place, and then on March 19th, uh, we were all in. And uh, as of uh, the last few weeks, I'm seeing about two-thirds of the usual number of patients in total compared to pre-COVID, uh, or as I referred to it now, BC, before COVID. And uh, of that amount, about 65% of the visits are telehealth with audio and video. The rest are all phone. Have not seen a patient in the office in person in about six weeks. And uh, I mean, observations, our goal, goals were to be able to continue to deliver care for our chronic patients and help avoid that second or third spike of, uh, of illness related to neglect of chronic illness, and also to take advantage of, frankly, you know, increased availability of time since people weren't coming into the office to reach out to our high-risk patients just to check in with them, as some of them, you know, might not think we were still around. Some of them might, you know, have needs and not feel that, uh, you know, they wanted to bother us, but uh, to be proactive and reaching out to them uh, to let them know we're here and to address whatever needs they have. And uh, we did not do any telehealth uh, prior to that uh, in this uh, practice with the exception, I think, one or two docs. Uh, so we basically adopted this uh, literally overnight and run into some of the uh, barriers that uh, are alluded to in the poll. I mean, technology, if we were doing this deliberately and uh, you know, with, with a lot of lead time, we would have done a uh, assessment of uh, what people have in their homes, some people have flip phones, that doesn't work. What smartphone version of the operating system there is. So we've run into that. We've had to actually improvise by having three telehealth solutions available. The default, which is tied into our medical record, and then two other ones that operate off smartphone. With the relaxation of the HIPAA requirements, you know, some of our docs have been using time and some non-compliant uh, methods just to get through this. Uh, and the, the reception from patients has been interesting. The limitations, which I think we'll be talking about later, are apparent. So this morning I had a patient who had uh, decreased hearing in one ear, and normally I would have taken a look in the ear, and it was hard to do over a telehealth visit. Uh, yet on the other hand, it's, it's quite uh, sobering to, to realize how much you can do without actually examining the patient, which uh, probably uh, have a lot of old professors spinning in their graves hearing me say that. Uh, yet, you know, certainly uh, the interaction, uh, the ability to visualize, but not necessarily to touch, doesn't hamper 
uh, a lot of the care that we deliver. So it's been an interesting ride. Thank you. Okay, our next speaker is um, Carrie Palacanis. Uh, reminding you, she's from Intermountain Healthcare, always a forward-looking organization, and she's the executive director of Connect Care Operations. Um, Carrie. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, as Yul was talking about, I, I feel the same way. I'm actually a family nurse practitioner by training and have been one for 30 years and spent the last 15 working in telehealth. And I described to a colleague of mine that I have been working with in telehealth for about 10 years, that I feel like for 10 years I've been pushing a boulder up a mountain and I finally have reached the pinnacle of the mountain and I've pushed and now I'm watching it snowball down. And all of the things that we were working on and really struggling to get in place are now here. Um, and then being a provider, I've, I've done uh, telehealth with family practice as well as substance use disorder for the last 10 years um, before I came to Intermountain. It, you know, I, I feel like I'm proselytizing to everybody around and um, don't understand why they, it took them so long to come to the table and want to do this. Um, but it's for me, it's been great. This has been wonderful. Um, I, I too, like you all mentioned, was stunned at your uh, slides because they look exactly like the slides that I have that I present regarding Intermountain's experience. Um, in February, uh, and this is a year into me trying to launch telehealth to about 3,500 providers in the Intermountain system, we were averaging about 80 visits a week in February um, through our, our video visits. Uh, in mid-April, we were at 50,000, and now we're doing about 60,000 a week. Uh, and these were providers who a large percentage were fairly reluctant prior to it. Um, I find that the consumer is actually driving the uh, adaption to telehealth right now because they don't want to go into the practices either. I had a um, conversation yesterday with a provider about our remote patient monitoring program and how we interact that with our video users as well. And he said, well, if I never have to go into my office again, I'll be happy. And I said, well, I can make that happen for you. <laughs> but uh, the, you know, there, there's so much that those of us who've worked in telehealth for years knew was capable and, and knew was possible. And then thank you to my and the folks at CMS for really leading the charge and changing reimbursement and, change, and allowing us these waivers. I think if I were to pick something that makes me um, hesitant and concerned about the future is what will happen when we get through COVID um, and we get to our new normal. Are these waivers gonna be rolled back and how will that impact the progress what we've made today? But at Aaron Mountain, we've done some really fascinating things. Um, we actually took the what we had as a measles um, workflow to keep patients from going into our facilities when we were dealing with the measles. If you remember that way back when, now last fall, um, we developed a program where we used our online urgent care along with um, working in conjunction with the health department and our infectious disease team. And we could do everything virtually and keep people from coming in if they had a suspect measles case, um, even to the point where the health department would go to their homes to draw titers. And we took that workflow and created a COVID workflow and so we have a no-touch COVID assessment and testing uh, management system from that. Uh, so there's just been, and, and then I never to let any disaster go to waste, um, was able to go back to our system and really say, hey, look what we can do with remote patient monitoring um, in and managing patients prior to diagnosis and post-diagnosis. And we're doing some really interesting things with COVID management and RPM in conjunction with video visits. 
So for me, it's been like a giant party, <laughs> but uh, I, I constantly am telling folks that there's a lot that can be done through telehealth. Now, whether or not it should be done through telehealth is um, requires some mindfulness. And I think that's where the quality comes in. Um, and like you all, I had taught as well. And I used to teach the nurse practitioner students that 95% you know, of their diagnosis came from a good history. Uh, and so that lends itself to telehealth, but it doesn't eliminate the need for on-hand touch. We use it a lot for triaging patients as to whether or not um, they need to come in. And so either through our urgent care situation or what I've taught the primary care providers and specialists that have come on board is go ahead and do the telehealth visit. And then you can make the determination whether that patient needs to be seen, like you'll mention the patient with the ear pain. Now there are devices now on the market that they, you can look at a patient's ears, but they're not ubiquitous yet. And that's, that's the future. Um, and I think if we keep the expansion we're at right now um, and we can keep most of those waivers in place, then we're gonna be looking at a whole different way of providing care in the future. Thank you. Mai, I think we'll go to you next. Thanks. Um, so first of all, I, I should uh, thank Carrie for the unearned praise. I'm actually not at CMS anymore, um, but I'm glad that my colleagues still there have been to move as quickly as they have um, to make some of these policy kind of waivers. So, you know, Peggy, from, from my perspective, on the one hand, like Carrie and like, like others, I had a very gratifying for the experience because two years ago, we began requiring in our most aggressive care contracts that providers build certain capabilities, including telehealth, including the ability to conduct e-consults or request e-consults. And to be perfectly honest, um, while all the providers philosophically understood the directionality of those requirements, some of them came kicking and screaming. Um, but suddenly, when March came, they looked very smart to their peers and it was much easier for them to pivot um, than to not. So on the one hand, we've had that very gratifying experience and Anthem has moved quickly to, um, you know, uh, we've cost sharing for uh, COVID diagnoses and testing and screening. We've um, uh, made sure that there's payment parity for telehealth versus in-person visits, including for behavioral health. So, we too are excited by the prospect of this, and especially as we think about the broader implications for what the future care delivery model looks like um, beyond just video visits, um, as, as Carrie and you all have, have mentioned. On the other hand, I have to say that there are, um, there are a number of issues that keep me and others at Anthem awake at night, and they, they cover quite the range. On, I think at one end of the range, we're very worried about a situation that we, I think we want to deconflate telehealth versus COVID more generally. And what those two sets of circumstances are imposing on all of us at the moment. Um, you know, we, we are very concerned, for example, when we see gross reductions in incidents of my admissions um, or visits to ERs. Where are those MIs, those mild strokes, those appendicitis cases going? Is it that they are not reaching out to their providers at all and therefore not getting the advice to go for an in-person assessment or under what conditions to do that? 
or is it that they have reached out to the providers, but somehow the the non-visit based screening is not catch either not catching the need for further assessment, or that the provider is somehow less able to influence patients um, in that in that kind of interaction. We don't know. I think these are questions that we don't know, and and I don't think that that's um, that's at all a reason to. Uh, pull back on support for these new modalities of care, but I think that it raises broader questions that we all have to answer about what is appropriate to do, for whom, under what circumstances, and where, where do diff different modalities have to supplement each other? Is there even a way for us to codify that as an industry, as a, as a field of science, in order to give all of us and patients more confidence about how to navigate this. It also, I think, raises a lot of questions about potential and other potential unintended consequences around disparities of access, not just to the technology itself, but the ability to use it, even if one had broadband and access to the machinery um, and the software. Um, and, and then it raises, I think, all kinds of questions about um, what accountability means right, in this brave new world, when and if we should get to a new steady state. I think everyone is anxious for a lot of answers because there's so much uncertainty, but precisely because of the degree of uncertainty, none of us can offer the answers at the moment. All we can do is unearth the questions and sort of head down the path of figuring out you know, what is the right data and evidence to collect um, and how do we want to collectively answer those questions. So there's just a lot that's keeping me awake right now. Um, it is very exciting. I also, to, to echo something that Yule said earlier, the word deliberateness really, really rings in my head. Um, we want to be able to move forward, but to do it in a deliberate way um, and, and keep everyone safe while doing that. Thank you, Mai. I'm gonna be asking the panel about, now that we're you know, kind of into the hurly-burly and maybe we're gonna get to a little calmer environment, what are the first things that we ought to be doing uh, to solidify the appropriate use of telehealth and um, to encourage it? Um, and what should we be worrying about? Michelle? Are you there? Well, thank you so much for including me in your panel today. And thank you to all of you for the work that you're doing really to help the entire country and all of our patients when it comes to COVID. We've been very busy at CMS. I'm sure that you uh, can understand that and have tried very hard to extend maximal flexibilities for providers, for health systems, for patients, to ensure that they can get the care that they need during this time. So we have really been working constantly with, as you've seen, several interim final rules with comment that we have been moving through quickly to allow for things like physicians to work across state lines or for providers to be able to work at the top of their license. And certainly near the top of everybody's list is the fact that telehealth has been expanded significantly and is being reimbursed virtually everywhere, as well as just telephone visits, because we heard back from both a number of providers as well as patients 
that they didn't yet have the capability. Um, and so all of this is being paid for under various waivers. I will say that everybody realizes the genie's not going back in the bottle here. And for those of you who are worried about um, what happens in the future, are we going to go back to the way we were? I don't know that there's anybody who thinks that we're going back to the way we were, but it has to be a very deliberative thought process about what does get paid for, what are the appropriate circumstances, and there's a tremendous amount of thought at CMS that is ongoing about that. Lots of comments coming in, as you can imagine. Is, for example, a telephone call the same as a history and physical that is done preoperatively, or the same as an admission history and physical? And I think those are things that all have to be worked out, and we don't know yet. What we do know is the explosion of telehealth has been so important and has provided patients a safe way of being seen, physicians a safe way of seeing their, uh, their patients, and being able to decrease the uh, spread of COVID. So the future remains to be seen. What are some of our perhaps concerns about this? Recognizing that telehealth really will be a vital part of healthcare going forward. But what are some of the concerns? I think concern number one is, are they comparable? Is it really comparable to have a telephone visit or just a, uh, a telehealth with audio and visual and uh, visual visit? Is it the same as seeing somebody in person? All of us who went through medical school and all kinds of provider training for many years were taught, yes, that the history is the most important thing. But it was also drilled into us how important the physical exam was, too. You know, how do you identify a heart murmur and being able to uh, tell that and being able to pick up subtle neurologic findings, for example, or doing a fundoscopic exam to look in the back of the eye. These aren't things that are quite so simple. And so um, are they comparable? Should they be reimbursed the same? The payment for services includes the overhead of offices, for example. And the overhead for telehealth is, so should that be the same or should it be different? I don't think any of us know the answer. And how do you monitor and track telehealth? You can do it to some degree, but I can tell you the people in CPI who do, uh, you know, fraud and abuse uh, are looking at this very carefully going, well, how do we monitor this and how do we track this? And again, there aren't answers. These are just questions that are being posed that people are thinking about it. I think from a quality point of view, we also have to ask, is it the same quality? Is it the same quality that you get on a televisit versus an in-person visit versus a telephone visit? Um, and that remains to be seen, I think, in several ways. One, in the outcomes. So in theory, then, outcomes should be the same if you have a telehealth visit or an in-person visit or, or another kind of virtual visit. Um, and we're going to have to, as we have always been doing, look more and more at outcomes measures so that we get some of those answers. The measures themselves, quite honestly, are going to need to be examined because a lot of measures don't include telehealth visits. And so all of us are going to have to go through the measures that we use and see, are we using telehealth? How do we use it? Do we include it? Um, and I think there'll be some substantive changes there. So lots of questions, not yet a lot of answers, except to say this has really been a very 
exciting time of releasing and unleashing innovation, different ways of doing healthcare. And I think the post-COVID healthcare world will never be the same as it was before and that we're entering an entirely new phase of healthcare for our country and for all of our patients. So thanks so much for including me today, Peggy. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I just wanted to say uh, that NCQA has been looking at including telehealth visits in our measures. And I, I think we feel very lucky that we got, we got ahead of the issue, uh, I think about two years ago, and um, in a number of HEDIS measures, for example, follow-up after hospitalization, um, a telehealth visit is okay. Uh, there were some things where uh, there, the, our advisory panels really did not agree that it was okay, and, and we're kind of struggling right now to try to, you know, see if under the current circumstances we might want to be more permissive. So a well-child visit is an example of something that was fairly controversial with the panel, um, and you know, I think for good reason. Um, but I wonder if any of you uh, have a point of view on on that. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. You know, this was an issue even before COVID. BC again, you know, hypertension, which I spend a lot of time treating. You know, with the guidelines that came out a couple of years ago, uh, really uh, pushing the issue of home measurement of blood pressure, and uh, that sometimes being more valid than office readings when we talk about uh, white coat or masked hypertension. Uh, yet the measures are all based on office measurements of hypertension, and here we are dealing with patients who are hypertensive and may have a blood pressure cuff in televisits, and many of them have provided me with their blood pressures. You know, those, those aren't gonna count as far as I know in terms of my, uh, my measures. Um, and there are other similar metrics that uh, you know, normally we assume are obtained in the office that can be obtained at home, um, yet uh, right now they don't count. So that's something that uh, We'll have to grapple with as a clinician. I mean, the whole issue of home blood pressure measurement is one I've struggled with uh, as well because we know that there are devices that are uh, poor quality. The technique of measurement uh, varies, but it even varies within offices. Uh, but something to to deal with, as well as other metrics that are based on something that is typically done in the office that can actually be done elsewhere. Right. I I mean. Um... Uh, the hypertension measure is one of the issues where we kind of drew the line in a conservative way so that if a patient has a remote connection that measures their blood pressure and it just gets sent to the to the delivery system, that counts. But the patient measures it themselves, that, that didn't count. I, I, I think you can probably expect to see some change there um, just because of the necessity to do something like that. I mean, it, it just feels impossible. Um, Mai, were you trying to speak? Um, I was just going to say that I, I think, uh, one, it's great that there's already been some work done before COVID looking at inclusion of telehealth codes. I would, my intuition would be that for the go forward, on the one hand, we cannot wait and take no action until we have science that is as precise and complete as we have gotten used to having it for measurement and accountability in the past. On the other hand, we, we can't move ahead and expect that level of precision in the short term. And so I would beg of us all collectively for some forbearance to move ahead 
with measurement because frankly that's the only way we're actually going to get the data that we all want is if there is the expectation of measurement but that we are more forgiving in terms of perhaps the bands of certainty or the way that we benchmark or the way that we score um, so that we can all learn in real time. Um, I do think there is, there is real risk of patient harm by going too far in either direction. Um, but if, we're, if we can maintain some level of humility and pick a reasonable middle path where there's the expectation, but we're not going to try to completely um, eat things out to the third decimal point in, in every case. It's very important, especially for there are so many um, providers and systems that are now looking to either develop or expand telehealth um, systems that they embed metrics and quality measures into their program, that they don't just go ahead and say, well, we have these waivers and we're going to use any system and it's kind of a free-for-all, that if you, if you build the system with the metrics in place, then you can start generating that data. It's something that we in Intermountain are really mindful of. And every time we start a new service line or we look at a different way to use telehealth, the very first thing that we do is um, determine what metrics we're going to use to uh, assess quality and um, efficacy associated with that program. And everybody can do that. And the other thing is that also take the metrics that you currently use in your program management and see which of those can be applied in the telehealth environment. Quite frequently, they can um, translate from one to the other. I wonder if I could ask you, Carrie, um, about something that you all are doing with telehealth that you think is really pushing the boundaries, and how do you how do you assess the effectiveness of that? Oh wow! Um, every day I think we're doing something that kind of pushes the boundary, um, but. I think the thing that we're focusing a lot on right now is improving the um, delivery systems that we have. I'll give you a classic example this week that we've um, stumbled upon that we didn't have in the past. Um, we didn't have the volume of video visits that required um, the translator to be part of the video visit. And we're learning that our traditional um, systems that are well vetted in one-on-one -on -one video visits we actually have to look towards how we have real-time third-party incorporated in that. Doesn't necessarily have an, uh, too much of a negative effect when it's a verbal translation, but for American Sign Language, it's huge. You need to have that real-time, non-glitched interactivity. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're, we're noodling around right now. Um, our, our newest launch into um, waters that are, are tremulous um, involve virtual primary care and um, how can we utilize telehealth to provide more virtual primary care services because what frankly we're seeing is the traditional way of reaching out to patients with um, in-person visits aren't working for a large subset of our population so how can we offer a telehealth as an alternative access point not to replace but to maybe then once you have that, that interaction with the patient in a telehealth environment, nudge them into the traditional environment and get them involved, in, integrated into the traditional environment system. Um, and I myself have done that for years, but I, I now am working on it at a system-wide level to get people comfortable with the fact that, that it is a possibility. Great, thank you. And that does it for this episode of Inside Healthcare. Don't miss part two of this discussion. It follows right here on the podcast. Our experts answer even more questions about 
telehealth and where we're headed. I'm Matt Brock. I want to thank you for being here. We'll see you again, no doubt. <laughs>